Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. Once again, too much science to fit into half an hour, yet we will try regardless. Um, joining me as always are Stu. Hi there. And Claire. <laughs> Hello, Chris. And they have some excellent science for you today. Claire, what are you delving into? Well, Chris, I feel like there's a bit of a... Um, there's, there's a bit of an elephant in the room in every room that you walk into. Um, it's a bit of an invisible element, but everyone's a little bit anxious about it. It is, of course, the new uh, COVID-19 variant, Omicron. Um, you know, no one would, would have um, had that word in their, in their regular lexicon usage up <laughs> to maybe a week ago. Now it's all that we can talk and think about. I mean, unless you're a student of... Greek because it is yeah. basically just a Greek letter, so it, it means small. It, it means yeah. small o. That's all it means. Yeah, no. nothing scary about it's, it. I mean, it's 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 got it's got my micro in it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, love it's it. A, it sounds cool, but it just means little o. Little o. Little yeah. o. So yes, it is the new variant. Uh, we are all very anxious about it, but there isn't a lot that we know about it. Um, uh, but everyone seems to have an opinion. So what I thought we would do today is maybe instead of, you know, us giving our opinions or, um, you know, reading about things that, you know, where there isn't that much science happening, we are going to refer to what the epidemiologists are saying about this and their expert opinions as we need to, you know, shout it from the rooftops. Um, and spoiler alert, um, it all comes back down to vaccination, vaccination, vaccination. Excellent. Thank you, Claire, for spoiling the end of your story. <laughs> um, but look, I encourage people to listen to it anyway, even if they can find out more about the, um, like you said, this new word, Omicron, that you might not have heard that much about. Now, Stu, do you have a word that could possibly compete with Omicron? Possibly. Uh, if I say the word xenobots, does that mean Xenobot. anything? Yeah. Okay. I think Stu wins. Yeah. yeah. Oh, come on. Yeah. It should. It should be all over the news. Uh, and and in fact, it is if you're reading the right, you know, the right uh, coverage. But if you know, if it wasn't for Omicron, this would be, I think, much bigger news, and we'd all be going, "What is a xenobot, and what do I need to do about it?" Well, probably nothing. But I'm gonna talk about what a xenobot is, and it's it's basically a kind of artificial organism which is a kind of cool thing. And it's a, they've only existed since the beginning of 2020. Uh, and, but, they're, but they're starting to do interesting things which were not necessarily predicted. So I'm going to have a look at what they are and what they do and why that's kind of weird and what has it got to do with Jurassic Park. So <laughs> even if you know the ending of Claire's story already, stay tuned for mine. 
Yeah, okay. That sounds really good. Um, the start at the beginning of 2020. It's not like anything weird has happened since then that we could possibly say Xenobots have had anything to do with, but um, I don't know. They they definitely Just don't have anything to do with the coronavirus. Uh, there are, come on, come on, Chris. There's There aren't that many ways you can put these two stories together. <laughs> well, I will continue trying because um, that is my purpose and maybe I'll just back away slowly and say, on with the show. Okay, everyone. It's the biggest story of the week. Sorry, Stu, um, but it is. Everyone's talking about it. Um, it's sending us all into a panic, bringing back a whole lot of anxiety and fear. Governments are threatening to tighten borders again, and everyone seems to have an opinion, don't they? You know, of course, we are talking about the Omicron variant. Of the SARS-CoV-2 virus? Of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, yeah. Sorry, I just feel like that doesn't even need explanation anymore. But of course it does. Got to be good journalists here in Lost in Science. I am talking about, as you say, um, Omicron, the new um, SARS-CoV-2 variant of concern, as the World Health Organization has named it. And um, the reason they've labelled it of particular concern is the fact that Omicron has more than 30 mutations on its spike protein, um, more than double the number carried by the Delta variant of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And if you remember, the spike protein is what the virus uses to attach to human cells. And also, um, importantly, it's what COVID vaccines, um, you know, what they what they use to teach our immune system to recognise and target so we can create an immune response. Yeah, so the spikes, the spikes, aren't they? They're like the bits on the outside of the virus that yeah. give it its name, like the coronavirus. They like make it look like a little crown under a microscope. And so yeah. they're kind of the first bits that anything encounters, vaccines or cells and stuff yeah. like that. I mean, it makes sense from a physics point of view. If you've got a ball with a lot of spikes and it um, hits into things, then those... <laughs> Those spikes are going to be the first things that are impacted. Don't Um, try this at home. Don't try this at home, absolutely. So, yeah, the the more variations that are on this spike protein, um, potentially the less likely our immune system is uh, to recognise the spike protein when it, you know, um, infiltrates our system. It's kind of like like putting on extra layers of disguise so if it had one mutation it would be like a false mustache and then two mutations <laughs> would be a false mustache and a hat this one's got 30 mm. mutations it's in a full different costume how's our yeah. immune system going to recognize it with all that costume <laughs> totally i mean are there even enough halloween costumes in the halloween shop <laughs> i don't know <laughs> am i have i taken the analogy too far maybe um, but anyway, you know, what exactly this means, how it's going to impact, whether Omicron's going to take over Delta, these are the questions that are sort of swirling around, a border's going to close, everyone's, you know, asking these questions, are we going to be, you know, are we going to be back to where we were 20 months ago? And you know what, um, I'm not here to speculate, as you know, I don't hold a degree in epidemiology, but I do know there are a lot of uh, much, you know, much um, smarter people in this area, 
out there, experts who are out in the media talking about Omicron. Um, they don't have a lot of time on their hands, but they have, um, you know, these brilliant minds have put together some answers to some of these common questions. So I'm going to go through them today and talk about Omicron. Specifically, I'm going to talk um, about one expert who's who I've seen a lot over the last 20 months. I've seen a lot of her over the last 20 months. It's Professor Raina McIntyre, um, who is the head of the biosecurity program at the Kirby Institute, who's answered some of the questions um, that are most commonly answered. Oh, sorry, that are most commonly asked. Not commonly answered. So Raina was asked, given we know the Omicron genomic structure, we know that it has 30 different mutations, can we test the effectiveness of vaccines against it in the lab? And what is the likelihood that the variant is going to be vaccine resistant? Now, um, Raina is very clear with this, that we definitely do not have enough data to determine whether vaccine effectiveness um, or just whether uh, enough data to determine vaccine effectiveness against Omicron or disease severity. So um, any of the claims that you might hear at this stage are not evidence-based. Um, the pathogen genomics show the mutations that are associated with resistance to neutralizing antibodies and immune evasion. So uh, Rainer says that this suggests that some degree of vaccine escape is likely. So there may be, um, you know, with these particular mutations in this particular area, it is likely then that there may be, um, you know, some degree of, you know, vaccination coverage where Omicron sort of uh, gets in. So this is what they talk about when they're talking about um, breakthrough infections is where people are vaccinated and, mm. you get, and you get some infection and this may be a risk with the Omicron variant because of all those mm. mutations. That's right. Um, but Raina goes on to saying that vaccines will still likely provide protection against severe disease, but importantly, we do not yet have data to quantify exactly what this is, um, which is a very important point. So it's not like vaccines aren't going to work. It's, it's, um, it's that we don't have the data at the moment because, you know, we found out about this six days ago or a little bit more. Um, so the next question, if it turns out that this is a less severe variant uh, and it takes over from Delta, could it be a good thing for living with the virus? So, you know, this is this idea that's floating around at the moment that even though uh, it might be more transmissible, this Omicron potentially, maybe that's a good thing because Delta, you know, could potentially be more more deadly. Um, so Raynan uh, doesn't speculate about this. She says so far the virus has not mutated to become less severe. Um, in fact, the opposite. So that's what we've seen, I guess, from the uh, Wuhan strain to now the Delta strain. Um, and the WHO urges caution in interpreting preliminary reports that have been reported out of South Africa, uh, where doctors have said there um, that Omicron is related to mild symptoms. Uh, this is really a small group of patients that uh, have reported this. So what we need here is proper epidemiological data 
required to determine the relative severity of the variant. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense that if the spike protein is kind of the, the main way it gets into the cells and this has a spike protein that can get around defences, that it is going to multiply more and perhaps more do, do more damage in the cells. We can't assume it's going to be milder. Mm. I mean, it could be, but mm. yeah, we can't assume that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the next question is, how will getting a booster shot uh, of the vaccine mitigate the risk of infection and severe disease from, uh, you know, new SARS-CoV-2 variants like Omicron? Now, this is where there's some very clear advice. So for uh, Raina says for Australia, speeding up high third dose coverage is very important because waning immunity after dose two starts two to three months after the second dose. Uh, the booster... The booster shot, the third shot, it can be given any time from two to six months after the second dose. I don't know whether that's in line with Australian standards, but um, it can be given any time after two to six uh, months. And Raina says we should be encouraging rapid high third dose uptake. Um, and also advises we should be ensuring supply of paediatric vaccine formulations and recommendations of kids um, 15 to 11 years as soon as possible. So making sure um, that we're talking to companies and making procurement plans for Omicron match boosters, um, as well as the two new promising antivirals. Um, now, the next question is around, well, what's happening here on a planning level and uh, the Doherty modelling that, um, you know, has been modelling out, you know, coming out into the world after the Delta variant and lockdowns. Do we do that need? Does there now need to be new Doherty modelling? And uh, Rayner says that the genetic mutations indicate the Omicron variant has enhanced transmissibility. So pre preliminary and preliminary analysis of the genomic epidemiology suggests that um, the R naught or the reproduction number could be much higher than for Delta. So border control is important in the short term to just buy time to get those third booster doses um, and vaccinate kids and um, make plans to be able to get more vaccines and more antivirals. Um, any moves to sort of stop QR codes or potentially um, get infected patients to notify their own contacts um, will make epidemic control impossible if the variant takes off so pretty much there she's just saying we need to put we need to keep those those um, systems in place to make sure uh, where we can have contact tracing and you know we've, we've got all those those systems that we've been become so familiar with over the last 20 months or so so there you have it the experts say we need you know more information about the variant we need to rethink border control and public health measures like, uh, you know, wearing our masks to buy us some time. But most important, uh, we need everyone to continue getting vaccinated, whether that be your first two shots or your booster shot when it's time to get, uh, get the best community coverage to beat this new variant, whatever comes, what, whatever, whatever lies ahead. And I, I've, I have been seeing some people uh, saying that it's possibly a good thing that 
this variant has arisen in areas that have low vaccine coverage because it's uh, an indication that they have got low vaccine coverage. And so there's an outbreak in an area with low vaccination rates, which might be a suggestion that vaccinated areas are better protected against mm. new variants and against spreading of those mm. new variants. So, you know, th- these these people are sort of suggesting that if there was a new variant that arose in a highly vaccinated country or highly vaccinated region, that would be more of a concern because that would mean that it's definitely overriding the vaccines. Whereas in this case, we kind of don't know... But the fact that it's from an area with, or, or a country, or countries with low vaccination rates is possibly a, a positive in a way, as far as you know, it being a really, really bad thing. So you know, we do just have to wait on the data, I guess. Yeah, absolutely, and I think it just underlines the, um, you know, the fact that we are all in this together, um, and even though you know we might have done a very good job at vaccinating Australia and we need to roll that out across the world um, so everyone can stay calm and get vaccinated. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. One of my favourite things about science fiction is watching some of the ideas from various books and films and even comics uh, become a reality through scientific research and development. And the story I'm looking into this week has its beginnings in, I guess, in a number of different stories, but I couldn't help but think back to the famous character, Dr. Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park. Mm. Who's, Life finds a way. Yeah, whose famous quote kept popping into my head, <laughs> Life uh, finds a way. Uh, Now, it's not only the quote from Malcolm that stood out in this story, and I'll explain as we go through. But first of all, I am talking this week about xenobots. Now, what, you may ask, is a xenobot? Uh, Well, the xeno part of the name might set us off down the wrong path. A xeno, from the ancient Greek, usually means strange or stranger or outsider. But in this context, it's actually kind of coincidental. Um, xenobots are artificial organisms. So that is kind of strange, I guess, and they are kind of outsiders, but it's not really how they got their name. They're actually named after the organisms that they were constructed from. So cells from the embryos of a species of frog called Xenopus lavis were used to create cell cultures And then the cell cultures were used to create living cell masses in vitro under various conditions. So basically they're called xenobots because they're named after this frog that they got the cells from, the embryo. And it sounds way cooler to to go, oh, they're xenobots, they're outsiders and strange. But, I mean, the uh, xenopus means strange foot. So that's what the, the frog is named, the strange foot frog, basically. It's got smooth, strange feet. Because you're right, like Xeno is that, yeah, that really outside of thing. I think Xenobiology is often used to refer to like alien life forms mm. and those sort of things. And yeah, uh, so Xenobots does sound freakier than just a frog yeah, robot. But it is just a, a frog cell robot, basically. Um, so these cell masses from the frog cells were then formed into various shapes and induced into forming different cell types. 
mostly skin cells and uh, heart cells. So the skin cells give it protection. The heart cells give it motion because the heart cells contract. Um, and then, uh, you know, the, basically the frog embryo cells are kind of stem cells. They can turn into different functional cells uh, under the right conditions. And the cell masses are naturally adhesive and they stick to each other quite easily. And then that is enhanced by using medical microsurgery glue to maintain different shapes of these xenobots. So they're living cells, but they're kind of glued together in, in into different shapes. Uh, and the different shapes give them other functional abilities on top of the cell types. For example, um, they can have uh, small pouches in which substances or objects can be carried, or they can be shaped to push against and move other objects around. Because the other quite surprising thing is these tiny xenobots or biobots, some people have been saying they should be called because then you can make them out of any old stem cells if you wanted to, I guess. Uh, They can move on their own. They can move around on their own. And that is kind of the point of them. They are motile cell masses similar to very simple multicellular organisms. Uh, And the various shapes they're formed into are designed by scientists, sort of, but they are also... Uh, fed or, or, or the the shapes of the designs are put out by artificial intelligence programs that are used to predict the behaviour of the different shapes. So hang on, so wait, these are like muscle cells and stuff like that that are glued together in different forms to be a kind of a robot, but they're not. Are they genetically altered, or are they still like? They could be a frog if they were allowed to run free, but we're basically constraining them to be something else. They, they don't. They don't behave like a frog. They, they're not going to ever develop into a frog. They're basically just cell masses. They're not. But they got the genetics of a frog. They have the genes of a frog. Yes. Right. They have okay. frog genes. Is what's telling them. This is crazy. What stuff. to do? It is pretty. It is pretty remarkable. And this has been going on for two years ago. They. They or nearly two years ago. They successfully uh, produced these xenobots. Um, so the different shapes are designed by artificial intelligence programs and they give them different behavior to suit a particular task. And then they build them in that shape. They test them doing these tasks. And then the results of these tests are fed back into the AI to inform future engineering decisions to improve the function of later generations of xenobots. So this might be kind of sounding familiar. It's basically an evolutionary process, except the natural selection part is replaced by performance criteria, which are set externally, not just survival. Uh, Deliberate decisions are made regarding how each generation can be consciously improved for any given job. They're not just waiting for mutations to happen. They're they're making these new shapes and and improving the, the xenobots as they go. And the idea is that these xenobots could be uh, used to perform jobs too complex for chemicals. So, you you know, if it's a drug and you want to deliver it to a certain part of the body, you can't just inject it because the body will break down the chemical or something like that. These, uh, you know, xenobots could be used to deliver those drugs to, to part of the body or something like that. A long way off doing anything useful like that. Also things like, uh, you know, um, maybe too tiny for machines to carry out. So cleaning up chemical spills or something like that, they could actually go in and 
break down particular chemicals if they had the you know the the capabilities engineered into them um and also novel tasks that we haven't even thought of yet that they may be able to uh be applied to um what do they look like because i'm picturing these kind of just these lumps of goo crawling around (laughs) they they kind of are just lumps of goo crawling around and they have they have various different shapes um, the other advantage is they're self-repairing. So if you built little tiny machines, if the machine got damaged, that would be the end of the machine. The xenobots are self-repairing because they're living cells, so they can repair themselves and stay Whoa. stay functional while they're doing the job, uh, if they're in the right environment, obviously. Um, so the idea of deliberate selection improving the xenobots being a kind of evolution is missing a key ingredient of biological evolution, which is mainly the passing of genes from one generation onto the next. The xenobots can't reproduce. They're artificially created and they just basically fall apart in a matter of days or weeks. The the glue breaks down and they just the the, the little blobs just fall into a mass of cells. Uh, I mean I don't know why I'm sad, but something makes me sad about that. And well they have they have no <laughs> kind of grateful. They have no <laughs> They have no reproductive system. There is no way for one xenobot to mate with another xenobot. But, as Dr. Malcolm says, life uh, finds a way. And recently, (laughs) the xenobots have been observed not quite reproducing, but replicating. That is, they're making copies of themselves from excess leftover cells. And the ability to do this is very much dependent on their shape. As only xenobots capable of moving cells around obviously can push together the stray cells. But if they're the right shape, the most common version that they've observed being a spiral shape, they make new spiral copies of themselves. Were they programmed to do this or is this something they have been developed and has been observed? They were not programmed to do this. It is an emergent property. So... I, I'm uh, I'm I'm not feeling sad anymore. I've uh, my stomach is turning and I'm starting to get quite worried. So it might sound familiar if anyone remembers anything about genetics. The DNA molecule forms a double helix, which is a kind of spiral, and it might be the shape itself is is naturally conducive to making copies of a spiral shape. And if you think of what a spiral is, the the space in the spiral is also a spiral. So it kind of makes sense if you fill up that space with matter, it will also form a spiral. (laughs) And that is kind of what these spiral-shaped xenobots are doing. They're just kind of moving around, pushing these cells up, and they form a spiral shape. Now, uh, the other thing that reminded me of Jurassic Park was that the frog species using this research is an African frog species. And without wanting to spoil the film, uh, that played a big role in changing the plans (laughs) of the owners of Jurassic Park. If you haven't seen the film, I recommend you go out and watch it. Listen carefully to the bit about the frogs because the frogs are a big issue in the end. Um, Now, this behaviour, as I said, this is what's called an emergent property. It was not predicted by the researchers before they observed it, and it wasn't really expected, uh, although it certainly provides a new avenue for them to explore. Um, I guess the, the upside of this observation is that the the new xenobot copies don't survive very long um they don't repeat this behavior either because they're very small and they are very weak and they're basically made up of scraps 
So they are, you know, not strong enough and they don't have the structural integrity to repeat that process and have a second generation of replication carrying on from the first generation. Um, But it will be interesting to see what happens if the AI starts to program more efficient replication in the xenobots and imagine a whole range or maybe a whole species of biological robots capable of self-replication and programmed to do various tasks. It really is starting to sound a lot like science fiction, except it's real. And that's it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded for 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love you to get in touch with us. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook where Lost in Science on 3CR or on Twitter where we're at Lost in Science 1. You can find us on your favourite podcast app where if you get the chance, please give us a good rating and review as that will raise us up in the search rankings so other people can find the science. Or you can listen to us however you listen to us now where at the same time every week, Claire, Stu and Chris get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.